there's only so many hospital beds. There's only yeah. so many doctors and nurses. Right. I have two things to add to that. First of all, that was a wonderful, exceptionally, probably the best ever description I've ever heard of flatten the curve. That is, the, again, talking about how, why did we lose flatten the curve? Everything that Jeremy said was 100% bang on. And I, I fully agree with it. And that was the messaging that was at the start of the pandemic that just got lost. And I have no idea why that got axed. It is time now for something positive. We might be headed to the promised land. The of promised speaking land, the truth land, and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. The problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. This is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rally, 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 rally. We've got to be that creative minority, creative minority, creative minority. Find a way to get in the way. I got in trouble, it was good trouble, it was necessary trouble. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. We're back. There you go. Have fun, guys. I love the conversation, by the way. <laughs> that was awesome. Jeff, Jeffrey, you, you, that, that's really great. I'm really glad you, you're clearly coming into these conversations with like a, a direction that you want to go. And right. I, I really appreciate that in the way that you're kind of. If you could, if you could include the Supreme Court decision on the OSHA mandate, because I, I was wondering how that affected the public health. Oh, you want me to to comment on that briefly? I'm happy to. Do I don't. That. I don't need you to be political. Oh, yeah, we got a whole another hour. Yeah. We're back for yeah. Thursday's episode, but um, yeah, in regards to public health, the way the fact that they split the difference by saying that medical employees needed to get vaccinated, but the general employment force didn't, or wear masks, or the whole mandate being shut down. There's no other way around it. And then Joe Biden said, "Well." It's kind of like, um, sorry, I'll let you talk. In in that movie, the sergeant is like, Gomer Pyle let, let me down. I can't do anything to help him. Now it's up to you. So you do push-ups while he eats the donuts. And Joe Biden was kind of like, I tried everything I can do. Now it's up to each person individually to take care of this because I guess I can't. And so I just was wondering if you had an opinion on how that affected the future. Oh. Well, in my effort to try to be relatively apolitical, as yeah, yeah, yeah. that was in the past hour, right? Um, I, I think it's important to, I think it's important to keep in context of like what actually happened on, you know, in the Supreme Court, because I think a lot of people like you see the, you you, you see the headlines of like so and so struck down Joe, like you know this majority struck down Joe what Joe Biden wanted, and it was like sure. it seems very personal and very much vindictive. And so I actually you know took the liberty of of reading through the original text of the majority opinion that was published by the Supreme Court on the text. It's like and the the very long teal of, of what happens like their core argument is that the the mandate was done through OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, right. OSHA's job by federal law is to regulate the safety and health of the workplace rather than to regulate the public health of the entire country. And so they thought that using OSHA as the re- as the vector by which this mandate was imposed to drive to drive to do something at a at a national level was seen as an overreach of OSHA's of OSHA's 
a legally allowed policy. And if you will permit me, I, I pulled a couple of excerpts from that majority opinion, if you'll be willing to just let me read. Sure. Let's do um, it. So, yeah. So this is, this is I think, did it, was it Brett Kavanaugh who published the original majority? I don't know. But this is from the majority. OSHA is tasked with ensuring occupational safety. That is safe and healthful working conditions. It does so by enforcing occupational safety and health standards promulgated by the Secretary of Health. Such standards must be reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe or healthful employment. They must also be developed using a rigorous process that includes notice, comment, and an opportunity for a public hearing. The Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act that created OSHA, contains an exception to those ordinary notice and comment procedures for, quote, emergency temporary standards. Such standards may take immediate effect upon publication in the Federal Register. They are permissible, however, only in the narrowest of circumstances. The Secretary must show, one, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards. And two, that the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Prior to the emergence of COVID, the secretary had used this power just nine times before, never to issue a rule as broad as this one was attempting to do. Of those nine emergency rules, six were challenged in the court, and only one of those was upheld in full. The question then is whether, I skip a paragraph, the question then is whether the Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, authorizes the Secretary's mandate. It does not. The Act empowers the Secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. Confirming the point, the Act's provisions typically speak to hand hazards that employees face at work, and no provision of the Act addresses public health more generally, which falls outside of OSHA's sphere of expertise. The dissent protests that we are imposing a limit found in no place of the governing statute. Not so. It is the text of the agency's organic act that repeatedly makes clear that OSHA is charged with regulating occupational hazards at the safety and health of employees. And it goes on for several more paragraphs. Thank you for being here, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) But that was that was the that was the core idea of, of why it was struck down. So think of it in that context. Right. Obviously, you can talk about the political motives of like being pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, not wanting to, you know, individual freedoms. That can obviously that plays a key role in it. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court discussions that happen are not like obviously they're influenced by personal beliefs. There's no question about that. But the reality is that the the decisions are approved or struck down based on the technicalities of the laws upon which they are. Um, would hope, passed. right? And, and evidently using historically previous efforts to take this route have not worked not necessarily for like vaccines but the routes that were previously attempted as the court talked about like there were multiple attempts to for what emergency things to be to be promulgated through osha that were struck down in federal court uh none of those worked and yet this one was bigger or only one of those was held out of the six that they talked about and none of the ones that were attempted were remotely as large or widespread and one of the things that they commented on is that like those those emergency standards are for like emergency response to short term st- to short term public health hazards, whereas vaccination is intended to provide long term immunity, right? So you have so th- those th- that was the technicality of why certain things were were, were why why the um, the claim why it was struck down, and I think it's important for us to really understand that, and it's more of a question of like what does the federal government's role in public health entail? And the reality is that public health, the only time that any kind of public health is mentioned in, in the Constitution is in the preamble where it talks about promoting the general, the general welfare. 
right. right? The purpose of the Constitution is to promote the general welfare. And then the Tenth Amendment says, okay, well, anything that's not in these previous nine is allocated to the states. And that's why we have a very state-based public health infrastructure. And only recently in the history of the country, in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, has the federal government really established federal acts to create, like, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration um, and the FDA, well, not the FDA, but the the OSHA, the EPA, like, mm-hmm. all these agencies, right? They came around in the 20th century in a change in approach. But even then, those acts that created those agencies are limited in what the federal government can do because they are empowered to only to a limited extent before the states have to take over. And so gotcha. Biden taking Biden's administration taking that tactic did not work because there are plenty of loopholes in the actual text of the law. And I think it's kind of fair to criticize the Biden administration for not thinking of that. Okay. Or not having a good enough, like, and here's another paragraph, right? And looking for legislative support for the vaccine mandate, the dissent turns to the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. That legislation signed into law on March 11, 2021, of course, said nothing about OSHA's vaccine mandate, which was not announced until six months later. In fact, the most noteworthy action concerning the vaccine mandate by either House of Congress has been a majority vote in the Senate disapproving the regulation on December 8, 2021. It's telling that OSHA, in its half-century of existence, has never before adopted a broad public health regulation of this kind, addressing a threat that is untethered in any causal sense from the workplace. This lack of historical precedent, coupled with the breadth of authority that the secretary now claims, is a telling indication that the mandate extends beyond the agency's legitimate reach. It's like, if your number one defense for something is an act that did not consider, you know, you know, it's it's like, come on, you, you got to do a little better if you're going to back that up in federal courts. So, well, Jeffrey and I sense. are always against uh, federal overreach. But how do you think it would, if employers just decided to adopt this across the board instead of being forced to by OSHA? How do you think that would affect the future of an endemic? That's be fantastic. That'd be a fantastic thing to do, and I applaud the businesses that have put in those vaccination mandates. And in fact, I actually, um, I met up with a vaccinated friend this morning and we went to a um, a really popular breakfast place in my hometown. And the Ooh. first thing that they asked was for proof of vaccination. So I had to take a picture, show a picture of my vaccine card. They're perfectly entitled to ask for that because you know, people say, oh, it's HIPAA, it's whatever. It's like, they're just asking you, right? right. They're not seizing that information from you, right? If you don't want to provide it, that's fine. You don't have to go to that business. Right. right. You, you, so, so that, that approach really can be effective. It's just that the challenge is it's always harder to get a, a million entities to do one right thing than it is mm-hmm. like independently right. uh, than it is to provide regulatory requirement that they do the one thing. Like if you get one agency to make all the other million do certain things, it's a lot easier theoretically to make that happen. When you There's put some a punishing power behind it. Well, and there's a lot of there's so so there's and that's where you see a lot of um, I, I'm going to call it innovation in terms of how businesses are enforcing vaccine mandates. For example, mm-hmm. there are businesses out there that are basically saying, "Look, you know, we're not going to be paying for your time off to recover from COVID, so either get vaccinated or get fired." And I think in terms of a business standpoint, that's absolutely fair of them to say. It's like, look, you know, when you think about the number of sick days anybody gets. Number one, uh, some of us are lucky to get five to 10 sick days a year, 
Now, this disease can eat all of that up in one shot, and that doesn't count any times that you might need to do, you know, doctor's appointments, take care of kids that are sick at home, take care of spouses that are all sick, those any other, other times emergencies. you use the sick day. And, and in place right now, uh, you know, you've had companies that have, you know, put in special sick leaves and things like that to address COVID because it is a gap right now. It was a gap uh, mm-hmm. when you were looking at lack of ability to mitigate a virus you know, either before or after you've gotten it. As more of these tools come into place, like vaccines, like antivirals, like monoclonal antibodies, like, 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 mm-hmm. what you're going to see is you're going to see a reduced willingness for businesses to pay for your ability to be sick. And they right. have every right to do that. So I want to say it's Walmart, if I remember correctly, at one point was going to basically go get vaxxed or get fired. And, and they have every right to do that. And, and that's the thing. And I think that's where this kind of ruling backed up, you know, businesses ability to make that decision in a way. So you're going to have business that are like, ah, fuck it, freedom, you can do whatever you want. But now that business is going to be the one that gets to realize the cost of that decision when their employees can't make it in and they don't have the sick leave. And then their employees start complaining, well, how am I going to get paid? And the business says, look, there's vaccines out there. There are, you know, antiviral pills out there. Eventually when those are on the market, Mm -hmm. you have the ability to mitigate all of this stuff and you're choosing not to. Uh, other organizations are doing things like, um, um, and this is more on a world base, uh, where they're charging employees healthcare premiums to deal with yes. lack of vaccination. Like so, smokers. So essentially, you know, you're making the choice and that choice is going to impact the costs of everybody else's healthcare because we're a pool. So if you're going to make that choice, by all means, you're allowed to, but it is going to cost you X amount of dollars per paycheck because mm-hmm. we're not going to fund you take, you know, you raising our costs. There's consequences to decisions. You're free to make your own decisions and personal health is balanced with public health and you know, personal freedoms, but we need to marry those two and understand that, yeah, there's a cost to your decisions, right? I think that's, I think that's an interesting concept that a lot of the the rest of the world doesn't really understand about the United States is that our, our entire culture is based, I mean, how we realize it is, is like the whole point is maximizing individual freedoms, right? That, that, that was the basis upon which a lot of the, the constitution was founded. And a lot mm-hmm. of the, the people who were involved in writing the conversation, uh, the constitution were very focused on that. So a lot of our cultural structure has evolved from that point where it's like, you can do whatever you want and realize the consequences. It's just that the challenge of public health now, especially in an increasingly globalized world is that, and especially with infectious diseases, is that your con- your actions have very severe consequences for other people. And so where is that line, you know, and the classic, the classic line that I've heard repeatedly is your freedom to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose. I've adjusted it to be your freedom to cough ends at the tip of my nose. <laughs> yeah, that's basic. That's basically it, right? It's like, okay, you know, how much how much action can you get away with? And and then, well, now how what does that mean for you getting a vaccine versus staying in a circle of people who don't care? Versus, it gets very fiendishly complicated because we we don't have these federal rights inherently endowed in our ability to just say, you know what, you must do all these things X, Y, and Z for. Right, talking about concern, you know, balancing federal oversight, but that discussion is a very important part of public health, 
that is never talked about, not in, I shouldn't say never, but it's very seldom talked about among people like me who work in microbiology. They're just like, just like my, I talk to my, my, my former boss is like, why don't people all just quarantine? That's so stupid that they're not. It's like, people aren't just always going to do what you think they're going to do. And they have their reasons. And rather than brushing them off and saying, screw them, listen, and you'll learn how to do things better. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the other things too is, is that, and and this is going to be interesting to see if this does happen, where if you have somebody who is unvaxxed and comes to work and gets somebody sick and they either get, you know, exceedingly ill, or let's say, you know, somebody ends up dying, then, you know, the question is going to be, can family members come after for, you know, number one, the person who brought in the illness, but number two, the business for allowing somebody to come in ill, you know, what does that liability look like? And I think that's where you're going to see some forced changes end up coming into play where somebody's going to end up suing a business for saying, hey, look, you know, I lost a family member because you're letting sick people come in and work. I'm blaming you for this. And when, and I'll be interested to see whether or not something like that would stand because we know that this illness can be very lethal. And the question then becomes, if businesses are not doing enough in order to mitigate their response, does that make them liable for the consequences of, number one, their inaction, and number two, somebody else's actions? And I think I think it's a really good point. And the other point is how far back in the transmission cycle will that go, right? If if you got COVID from a friend who worked at a company, and then you gave COVID to your grandma, and your grandma dies of COVID, like can you sue the company for introducing COVID to your friend? And then like, so it's like, what at what level of transmission can you cut off that liability? Is it like right. you were, and that's and so that actually kind of goes back really interestingly into this whole discussion about OSHA, right? OSHA's oversight is the workplace, right, and the hazards imposed by the workplace. So if your boss like forces you to do something that in worsens your health and you right. catch disease, you give it to somebody else, that is a very different discussion than whether or not some the boss was negligent and then the person who worked for that company was also negligent and then his friend was also negligent and then his friend was also negligent it's like nowadays with contact tracing if you re- a really good lawyer and a oh really God, good yeah. public health investigator can go back and find that information like it's it's not too difficult if you have the sufficient time and money to go after it and obviously the like grit and the I don't know the vendetta, but oh yeah if if, yeah. if you you if can you've got the that. money so what what's the cost? willingness Exactly. Remember, and that's, how many and guys, that's how many people did the first Korean guy infect? Wasn't it like hundreds? It wasn't. So that's, that's a good point. It was the first Korean, like, I remember what you're talking about, right? There was right. one, there was like a massive cluster of Korean infections that was linked to one person. Right. But it wasn't that one person that spread it to hundreds of people. It was that one person who spread it to like six right. or seven and then radiated out. So like, that conversation is like, okay, he was an index case, right? Or one mm-hmm. of the index cases for a, a large regional uh, outbreak in a region of South Korea, right? Is he responsible for all hundreds of thousands of deaths? Right. That's or my, hundreds that's of thousands of cases? It's like, how much liability does he have before he just winds up being a scapegoat? Like, your buddy right. is getting sick from you, I get mm-hmm. it, but like, every every round of transmission, like, 
it kind of the, there's a dilution in the blame because right. with every round of transmission you can make a very feasible argument like look this this person could have done better to protect their public their health and the health of those around them so well, the, I, i'm not i'm not trying to shoot holes in right the i'm just saying it's no, gonna be yeah. very interesting to see no. how that would play out in that and i guarantee you there's going to be a court case about it if well no. especially and especially when you think about it and and you and i both know that this has already happened especially when you have bosses requiring people to come into work even though they are known to be covid positive right and that is something that you know there's their means for osha to step in there that when was, you that have was somebody... the proposal for our frontline nurses and doctors was to come back after five days even if you were still infected so that's one of those things where i'm not even sure you know like you know the mechanisms that were laid out and and this was something that you know jason and i you had talked about is I didn't think the mandate was going to go through because it had right. literally never been used to do that before. I think that there were other mechanisms. I mean, you know, when you think about it, we have a mandate for children to be vaccinated in order to attend public schools, but somehow, you know, in the world where we, you know, talk to uh, talk about adults having, you know, you know, not wanting, you know, protecting children to keep them from being exposed to, you know, these, these risks, but somehow we're letting them quote unquote be exposed to this risk, but not adults. It doesn't make any sense. And that's well, Massachusetts think, uh, v. Jacobson that, that allowed that to happen. Yes. And the Massachusetts v. Jacobson was upheld in federal law because it was a, a local level mandate. It was mm -hmm. at the state or below level as opposed to a federal level. Right. So, right. and the argument was that 10th amendment allows states to impose certain mandates that are more aggressive than federal law. And so, you know, when you could, you were able to get it, or the, the I'm, not, I'm not sure if it was the entire state of Massachusetts or if it was a, a locality, but there was an entity that was not the federal government that required smallpox vaccination. Some people like this violates my individual freedoms. And the whole point was, well, you live in the state of Massachusetts. It's you can, the state of Massachusetts or this town or whatever can do that. So that's, that's, that's kind of how the public, the public school vaccination rates. I don't think that's a federal mandate. That's, I think it's just every state realizes that that is a good idea and can impose that rule. Fact check me if I'm wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works that every state has those laws. That's every state has those Every state has those laws, but every state also allows for, you know, different exemptions for vac uh, kids in, in terms of vaccines. It's not a federal mandate, but right. it is so widely adopted because it looks at that federal ruling. We used to yeah. be able to trust the CDC to give us like policies and recommendations, and then state local officials would tend to follow those to stick to that line more than they have lately. It seems every state wants to be an independent and every elected official is running for some new office and trying to get the attention of some base that doesn't want to be vaccinated. So it's a real weird thing where we need to get back to trust in these like you said, gold standard medical resources that we have, you know? Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because the, the CDC thing is by design, right? Mm -hmm. That the, the, the CDC is not really allowed to come in and work with states on certain stuff unless they're officially invited. And right. yeah, it's a formality, but there is like a formal invitation process. Give me one second. I'm having some audio issues, but please keep the conversation going and I'll join in a couple seconds. Okay. I think government can offer information and education in a general way. That's kind of what it's there for data collection, right, Jeffrey? But I wanted to ask you, do you think that like the mandate on vaccines not being OSHA regulated anymore, people are saying people are job hopping and that 
employers don't want to a mandate a vaccine because employees will just go to a place that doesn't mandate that. Do you even think that's an issue? Yes, I do think that's an issue to be honest. And, and the thing is, is that I think it's, I think it's an issue that, you know, uh, work from home will help solve. Uh, if, you know, I think as more companies realize that work from home is a very viable option and it, and I would argue that it goes to the reasonable accommodation standards. If you don't want to be vaccinated, great. You can't be in the office, but there's no reason why you still can't work for the company. Right. And, and especially like I, and I, and I argue this, especially for people who can't be vaccinated for immunocompromised. The, the idea that somebody who is immunocompromised would be forced to come to work in a pandemic, despite their inability to do any, you know, a lot of things mm-hmm. to protect themselves really does go towards that i would say that discussion on what disability looks like and the reasonable accommodation for allowing somebody immunocompromised to work from home especially when what a lot of employers have found out is is that there has been a boost in productivity because of work from home i think it becomes incumbent upon employers to be able to figure out how do you implement safety standards for number one those who are going to work in the office and number two the reasonable accommodations for those who aren't like i said reality you know for large retailers is is that yeah you're 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 not going to have your frontline retail employees being able to work from home that's not right. a reality that will ever exist at least in the current timeline but you will be able to have any of your back office employees who can not or are unwilling to be vaccinated still be able to fulfill their jobs but from home and the answer then becomes if you want to work in the office these are the conditions that you must meet in order to work for in the office otherwise your option is to work from home and i think that's in terms of what business needs uh what business needs to do in order to either a protect themselves from liability or, and b ensure their own productivity is is it's very much a it's very much a these are the safety standards that you have to meet in order for our office to maintain its grasp on its liabilities and i guarantee Great. you at some point you're going to see that i mean and they I require they require a a degree a high school diploma or a degree for jobs why can't they offer why can't they recommend a vaccine as well sorry dan's back yay Anyways, I think I think the main thing to keep in mind about all this is that these are conversations that the grand majority of public health does not or cannot get involved in because mm-hmm. like the CDC is like their job is not to rec- make recommendations for businesses to do certain things. Right. That actually is OSHA's job. Right. So at the federal level, there are a lot of things that cannot really be said. But I think that there's a very strong default practice in public health which is make people do things and make people do mandates and make people follow do this and the other a mandate just require that that seems to be like a and i think the natural process that comes from that is um public health folks say okay there's a disease it's causing a major problem this is the solution that we know works so we're going to make people do it and the people are like no screw you i have better things to do with my time and then it becomes this impasse and it's it's instead of having these interesting conversations about how are you going to work with like conditions of employment or how are you going to work with paid time off? Like when I was working um, on COVID response and again, talking about the nursing homes, the nursing home that got the fastest um, vaccine adherence pre any mandate whatsoever um, was uh, the first nursing home in the, in the County that said, okay, you are also welcome not to have a vaccine, but if you do get COVID, 
you are not going to get paid time off. You have to, you are going to get $0 for the 10 to 14 days that you'll be off. Right. And in two weeks, everyone got vaccinated because at the end of the day, when you play those games with people, that is much more effective than trying to do the mandate. And they can say, no, I don't like you, Ben. I don't like the government. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. that, those, those are things that the public health infrastructure, because a lot of it is in the government is afraid to touch because government telling business how to do stuff gets very dicey. So that's but, one of the variables as to why these discussions might not be happening is that it's not that we're being silenced. It's that it's not our uh, illegally and technically and historically, it's not been our job to do that. So whose you, job is it and how do we engage those people? You can, you can show the analytics, the numbers, the gathered information you've collected and then summarize it. And yeah. then it's up to the states to read that and interpret it the way they do. I'm just saying for a long time, states interpreted it generally the same as, I mean, they're not forcing them, but they put information out there like you used to do with PORP. And then people would go, that makes sense and go that way. Like government shouldn't enforce it, but they should definitely collect the information to show this is what's working and this is what isn't you know what i mean and it is that that is actually what the cdc is doing i mean they are providing right. a lot of this information and you, you mentioned before about the healthcare workers you know the, mm -hmm. the we're turning to work and everything a lot right. of that is based on like as as controversial as it is a lot of it is based on the fact that the majority of covid cases do not like become infectious out to day 10 right right it's the evidence to show that so it's like it's not that they could just do it. it's like there's depending on you know the critical mass of available healthcare workers and the vaccine status of people's like under certain the need cases, for them. like you're going right. to need people to come back to work faster if there's a lot if there's a, a significant shortage and a lot of that obviously that is a nonetheless that's a very big burden and i'm sure i can totally empathize with the healthcare workers who feel like they're being you know short shifted there um but, but you still feel like of, you still feel like crap after day five having COVID. I would imagine if it's yeah, a fourteen I mean, day it, thing. I mean, it it, uh, it depends on the person, and I can definitely see where someone who did have COVID on day twelve they felt like crap, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it this is completely valid to have that discussion. But I think a lot of that got lost in the oh CDC is now rolling back its guidance right going back to what we were earlier it's like what's our end goals or having the real discussions like we're going to find stuff yeah. out that's new I mean the CDC did not do a good enough job of saying look here's the situation and they tried to they tried to wrap it in like science says that this is fine right and not having the honest discussion of like look we need to reevaluate what our cutoffs are for safety because say the safety of thousands of people in a large hospital being below critical mass for nurses versus the potential transmission between two nurses who are properly instructed on how to use PPE and might or might not be infectious, right? That right. we have, we, the discussion was like, oh, the health, the information shows us is fine. And they just kind of conveniently ignored the concept of like, this is the real reason why we're doing this. Yeah. That's not a bad reason why they're doing it. It's just like trying to have a more open discussion with the public. Look, our priorities are shifting because we're realizing that taking a bunch of people out for mild Omicron cases when they're vaccinated is way worse for healthcare than it is to like potentially have a slightly higher risk of a couple one to two Z transmissions of the workplace. And that sucks to have to have that math happen, but we didn't have that pre-discussion of, look, we know it sucks. How do we make it suck less? Right. Here's the data that shows that it does in fact suck. <laughs>
Right. It just yeah. it got boiled down into headlines and disseminated on Twitter and Facebook as CBC CDC says this, but we didn't bother to like we do here with the long form discussions. We didn't have that data discussion on a granular level with the people like you say. And the CDC did not have the pre-discussion of like, look, here's the deal. Given the deal, here's what we're thinking. Exactly. And it's really been frustrating because as you watch, as I watch people go, see, watch them walk this back, watch them walk this back. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's more like, it's more like, you know, you approach something out of extreme caution. And as you learn, you you change what your your caution level is based on what you know right and that's the thing is is that you know this is something that's been constantly changing and i've, I've had to tell people that it's like oh well they keep moving the goalposts they keep changing things yeah because the virus keeps changing and so when you find out some new information if you keep doing the same thing and shit goes sideways you're an right. idiot but if you find out some new information and you make changes based on that it's far better. Uh, yeah, I just I, so people so people who are better at marketing than I will have to think about ways of like the public yeah. again the public health messaging of like times are changing right or we're evolving or we're learning more or we're shifting our perspective like things that are way better than that for marketing purposes. But that's the kind of conversation that has to happen. It's like how do we express the fact that you know it's not the same situation and we have we reserve the right to change our approach because of changing things that we learn and know like that the I, I i like that concept of the pre-conversation like that's that has to happen and i feel like that should be the primary message and the secondary message should actually be the changes in guidance right well i think that's and i think that's where you know we had that whole question the science thing it's like well science questions science and they does. yeah you learn you learn new things the question is it's not about whether or not you're questioning the science it's about whether or not you have the scientific background to question the science Mm -hmm. a lot of people have adopted question the science as a very anti-science way of saying reject science and the reality is is that no when scientists question science it's because we want to make sure that whatever we're doing is in fact based well within the procedure and on top of that is replicatable across multiple different areas or you know replicatable amongst multiple different studies it's not necessarily that you know we think that whatever the person before us did you know was terrible it's that we found a way that we think we can do it better and that's we just have to prove that that's the that that's the actual case but can you really blame people for having that misunderstanding when like 95% of our scientific education has memorized these facts out of a book? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And that's the problem is, is that, you know, I had to have this discussion with somebody who, you know, like uh, the discussion was, you know, I, I posted something that says we have a, we have a, a name for a group of people that takes no stimulus or receives no different treatment. And that's called the control group. And somebody said, well, you know, 
at least I'm not part of the experiment. And I said, no, actually you are part of the experiment. And that's the thing is, is that when you are the control group, you are the group of people where we know that if I do absolutely nothing, these are the results and everybody else who does something, those are the results that we're measuring. And so, you know, basic common, you know, scientific hypothesis is it's not that it's like, oh, this is better and we'll prove it by, it's like, no, no, no. What we're saying is, is that nothing's going to change. And if there is a change, we have to reject the null hypothesis and accept the alternative. And that's basic science 101. So when you do nothing and a bunch of you are ending up sick and hospitalized and the group that did something, you know, whether that's masking, whether that's vaccines, masking and vaccines, we can measure that and we can find out what what the cost of doing nothing is versus what the cost of doing all these other different things are. It's you're part of the experiment. It's just that you have the control group and you have the test group. And somebody goes, "Oh, well, that's semantics." I'm like, "No, that's scientific definition." Yeah, that's black and <laughs> yeah, white. So I, I want to say that real quick that we we ask the media asks science to predict instead of analyze because they hear the analyzation and they want a prediction. And then when a scientist gives a prediction of possibilities, then we argue the fact that they were right or wrong. But the analytics was correct. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, as scientists, it's like, yeah, we have a prediction. It's like, here's what we think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, is can we actually prove that that's what happens? Maybe the media started asking different questions and not doing pundit predictions and more doing this is the analyzation and summary, like we were saying about having a tiered, you know, um, information uh, you know, article to where, you know, the education gets more granular, the more they talk about it instead of here's a headline, here's a headline, here's a headline. You know what I mean? And that's actually what happens with science is like, if you look at, um, the way that scientific evidence is portrayed, especially in like medical studies, Mm -hmm. like if you look at, I mean, for my, for my civilian job, right. I, I was not really, um, I was looking up some information on, I think it was C. difficile infection and like the re- the clinical recommendations for how to treat Clostridioides difficile, which is really nasty, like gastrointestinal pathogen details, mm-hmm. right? And the way it was the, the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, had on its website, here's how we're going to do, here's what we recommend in this case, right? And under, they had bullet pointed recommendations. And at the end of each bullet point, they said parentheses, strong recommendation, mild recommendation, moderate recommendation. And then they clarified, it's like, the reason for this recommendation is there's overwhelming evidence that this works and there's partial evidence that this might work or there's this, you know, or this does not work or this very absolutely does not work. So you are able to have that, those two recommendations. So when you do ask scientists to make recommendations, there is a format in which that happens. The problem mm-hmm. is the digestion of that from scientists who have the training to a media that wants to make a one-liner that sells right. to a, a public that has not received good education, not That's because right. they're not smart, but because they the the design of education needs to be updated because it was designed to make you know a bunch of factory workers in the late nineteenth century, and it really hasn't been updated that fundamentally since then. I love you, right. Dan. <laughs> and it's, and 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 that's a discussion that you know I actually have with my kids is is that they're like. 
that, you know, our education doesn't make any sense. You know, it doesn't feel like we're, and I'm like, no, it doesn't. And that's coming from somebody who went and got a master's degree. And it's like, my master's degree program was very much a, this is how the process works. You actually have to dive in and work these processes and learn them in order to actually do your job. You have and to learn memorizing, how to learn. I mean, even, even, you know, the one that I always go back to is Einstein, why memorize that, which you're going to work with. And so the idea was, is like, he never memorized anything. The more he worked with it, he started to remember it and memorized it. And that's really what it boils down to. Nobody ever walks into their job on day one going, I've got this memorized from that time in high school. Are you fucking kidding? No. And, yeah. and I guarantee you that any scientist is going to be the same way. I've got that memorized. No, I, I don't. So you actually work with it a bunch of times and then you memorize it. Yeah. Dan had a story one time to where he, there was a, a flesh eating disease in the hospital that he was maintaining and he was in charge of trying to find out what it was. And he couldn't figure out why one patient in isolation was giving it to all the other patients. And then from watching, he realized that a guy that didn't speak English was mopping the floor in every room and spreading the infection. But it was through learning and educating, you know, it's not like he knew instantly he had to pay attention to what was going on to stop it. Yeah, because they don't teach basic microbiology in floor mopping school. Exactly. Right? No. And that's not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not being, well, I'm being a little facetious, but it's like, I mean, that job is exceptionally important. And that's why when we look at infection prevention, I mean, infection prevention programs in hospitals are mandated by federal law, again, mm -hmm. because, you know, that you're allowed to do that uh, in the way that they have that. Um, and a lot of them are evolving to involve a lot of people. You're not just talking to the doctors, you're talking to the more often or not to the patients, to the nursing assistants, to the environmental services people, like, because those are the people that are more involved in the transmission of infectious diseases. And you mm -hmm. have to look at that. And that's like the classic example of how we should be approaching, you know, public health and in, in pandemic medicine at a, at a at public health level is that, you know, you have very few doctors who call shots, but at the end of the day, 99% of the variance in how things happen is based on everyone who's not the doctor and everyone who's not the expert in the room about how the right. infection goes. So you have to engage those people if you are expecting a, if you really want to follow through on an expected good result. Yep. And that's the thing. You could have memorized the policies that regulated a janitor, and you would have assumed that variable didn't exist because it says not to do that. But he was doing it, and you caught it, not through memorization, but through paying attention. So somebody said to me, the messaging should be, this is the new normal if you are willing to accept it. And I like that. What I want to know from Dan is Omega, wait, I'm sorry, Omicron has, has swept the country and Delta is shrinking. Is there any way that Omicron can cancel out Delta? And then when the Omicron wave is done, we're left with nothing. I don't think we're going to be left with nothing. I think that goes back to, I think in our previous hour, we had talked yes, about what, yes. e what ecological niche will be left. Mm -hmm. I'm just still I, catching up from that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I think a function, I think a function of that is going to be, um, how far does Omicron actually go? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, cause obviously the people who are getting tested are the folks who are, um, symptomatic or exposed might mainly like people aren't getting regular testing or but not I think reporting also, them. 
Yeah, I yeah, true. But I think what's what's also really interesting to consider is that this is the first time in modern history that we've just had so many molecular tests for a virus. Yeah. Right. And a classic example is you talk about polio, right? So polio was really nasty disease in the 50s and 60s, 40s and 50s, and then in, or barely into the 60s with the polio vaccine, right? Um, polio, vi- polio virus is 75% asymptomatic. So four times as many people were actually getting infected with polio or colonized with polio virus than they were actually getting polio. So we don't really know. This is the first time we had the potential answer of like what are the unknowns of like how many people are going to actually be infected at such a low level that we don't really, you know, we know what that total, the total denominator looks like. So I think what's going to be very interesting about this Biden administration attempt to send out hundreds of millions of tests is like, let's say hypothetically half of the we do a it's what basically what they're asking us to do is a point prevalence survey which is what we do in 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 public health is like okay take a test right now or take a survey right now what is the prevalence of this disease within the population we have never ever 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 had that done in the united states at such a national level for any disease ever i think it'd be very interesting to see how case rates change from those at-home tests, and if they're logged at all, be very curious to see how far our far Omicron goes. And the reason is, you talk about is it is uh, is COVID going to drop back down after Omicron? Well, if everyone's infected, it's definitely going to drop back down. Is it going to permanently drop back down? Probably not, because there will be that filled ecological niche for other people to get sick. Right. Right. There'll be there'll probably be a new variant. But will that new variant escape the immunity enough of the vaccine plus Omicron infection? That's a function of how much of the how much how how many people are infected with Omicron and have natural immunity. Whether or not we have a new vaccine booster, because I know that Pfizer is working on an Omicron specific vaccine, right? Right. So how how does all of that fit together? It's a lot of complicated questions and a lot of like factors that go into the model of like you know this gonna this is like i did i did in infectious disease modeling in grad school and oh man it was it was rough um like trying to like develop all these constants and variables to like try and balance out the curve is like okay well this one represents the rate of you know transmission to certain people and this is the rate of recovery and all it gets messy and so yeah. the, the the answer the very you know that was a very verbose answer but the tldr is unlikely but it depends on a lot of factors that we just don't have the data for yet. And I could probably give you a better answer in a few months. Okay. I like that. So tennis player um, Djokovic was kicked out of Australia because he was a public issue, not because of public health health hazard, but for a different reason. <laughs> I, I lost track of some of that story. I think, well, first of all, it was the vaccine card vaccine exemption thing. right he had and, covid and it, in six in, within six months of applying but that wasn't the rule and it's been bad i'm just more curious about how you feel australia is handling the pandemic uh with, to be honest their regulations i've been too preoccupied locally to know for sure but if we just use djokovic as an example is right right different countries are going to have different rules about how they're going to manage you know immigrants visitors Mm-hmm. I know that um, New Zealand and Australia both took a very aggressively strong stances on COVID transmission and were really seriously locking down their countries. And it was very effective. And it comes down to this balance of like, how are we going to, you know, 
what is personal freedom versus public good and how do we balance that out? And also the, the social safety nets for people in those countries are much more robust than they are here. So it was less of a concern when the country was like, oh yeah, don't go anywhere for four weeks except if you need groceries and mm-hmm. just, you know, it's okay, we'll be fine, we'll make it through. You know, I, that that strategy worked, but again, it worked for the longest time before, well, first of all, when they had enough advance warning to, to lock down the borders. Right. Second, when they had wide or, or, or deep enough surveillance to be able to catch most of the cases early on. Because when I guarantee when we were catching the first couple dozen COVID cases back in like winter of 2020, we were already in the tens of thousands, but we just didn't have the ability to test for it. And we just didn't think that we needed to test wide enough for it. Right. And this and the the last thing was again having those social safety nets. When you do lock down, are people going to be able to compl- able to comply? It's not a willingness; it's an ability question. It's and, an ability, right? And, and, those, and in those countries that did lock down more aggressively, the willingness was higher because the ability was greater. And that's just no, we just did not have the system that could withstand that kind of lockdown culturally, because. Right. Historically, we don't have the the governmental and economic and financial logistics to lock down as hard as those countries could. And it wasn't just because, oh, New Zealand's an island. No, I mean, Vietnam did this exact same thing. And they share, I think they share a border with China, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they do share a border with China, right? They, it, it's all in the, the, the financial economic approach that you would take. And again, at the end of the day, it's all about money. It's all about people's money. It's all about government money. It's all about that. Uh, and it, it's it sounds kind of sleazy to talk about, but if you have the system in place to make those aggressive adjustments, the money impact is not as bad. Public access America. It's always funny because, like, you know, especially because as you know, libertarians, we get a ton of shit, even amongst other libertarians. I think political philosophy is a lot like religion, and where there's moments you have to go on faith and trust what somebody else is saying. The main, the main focus is it's like less dependence on the government because, well, we've seen how that's gone, and you don't have to do that if you think about it in a human way. You know, more dependence on connections with each other. But you can always bring it back to what would one human do for another? What would a hundred do for a hundred? People looking out for people. Find Public Access America anywhere you find your favorite podcast every Sunday and Thursday. And join the chat on YouTube at Public Access America every Sunday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Communities looking out for community. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making. In the making. Okay. And Jeffrey, I'm not going to ask Dan about this because it's slightly more political, but how do you feel about China's no COVID policy? Um, I think it's absolutely uh, insane. Uh, And I say that because um, two reasons. Number one, if you think that locking down an entire city to prevent COVID is the way that it's going to work every single time, you're really going to hurt your ability as a country to produce you know, the goods and services that you're required and need to. And number two, that money eventually runs out. Now, granted, you know, I I could get into my political spiel on on China and and the way that they handle things. I'm not going to. But simply from a mathematical and statistical perspective, I get why you want to avoid people getting COVID. But at the same time, a lot of what I'm going to say is you're prolonging 
uh, the inevitable. And I'm not saying go out and have a COVID party. I think that's also a really dumb idea. I think it has to be a measured response. And it's one part, you know, people are going to get infected. And then one part, you know, make sure that you have the hospital room mm. and the treatment room available. Now, like to me, like, you know, there's a lot of hope on the horizon that, you know, you have, you have things like um, vaccines and you have things like, you know, this potential uh, protease inhibitor uh, pill from Pfizer that's coming out. You know, something where it's like, look, you start to show symptoms, you start popping the pill, you're vaccinated. You know, this, this should hopefully uh, limit your ability to infect others. And it's not going to be foolproof, but it's certainly going to be better than the alternative, which is not getting vaccinated, but then locking people down and then opening people back up. And then you're going to have somebody else get infected and then you lock it back down. Right. Then you open it back up and then you lock it back down and then you open it back up and it, you're just going to cause a lot of misery and suffering. I think what it has, what has to happen is it has to be a multi-pronged effort that I really do believe focuses on, uh, availability of hospital beds and availability of treatments and you only go for more severe measures when you are reaching you know a certain capacity threshold in your hospital levels and i think it has to be tiered it, it shouldn't be ah shit we're at 95 percent full shut it down it should look more like okay we're at 50 percent full we're going to put some recommendations out there at 75 percent we're going to start uh we're going to start dealing with this aggressively and at 95 percent, you go into full shutdown because you know one of the things that you have to keep in mind is is that from a data perspective is is that you're, you're always going to have a certain percentage full and you know we have good data on what that looked like so now the question is is what does that impact look like so that way you're keeping enough critical resources available to address issues that come up and the other thing that you have to keep in mind and especially like place where i live is is that if you have an event that causes mass mass harm and mass casualties if you don't have space available at that time and something happens your your survivable event suddenly becomes a lot less likely to survive not because not because uh you know, the event itself was more harmful, but because of the fact that you don't have the resources available to treat those casualty, uh, those casualties. Only so many ambulances in a county, you know. There's only so many hospital beds. There's only yeah. so many doctors and nurses. Right. I have two things to add to that. First of all, that was a wonderful, exceptionally, probably the best ever description I've ever heard of flatten the curve. That is, the, again, talking about how, why did we lose flatten the curve? Everything that Jeremy said was 100% bang on, and I, I fully agree with it. And that was the messaging that was at the start of the pandemic that just got lost. And I have no idea why that got axed. I don't know why. I don't know. Because the, 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 cur the curve flattened and people saw as success. Yeah, maybe, or maybe it just got forgotten. Well, why didn't it come uh -huh. back, right? Yeah. Like that's 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 absolutely it. The second thing is um, with Jeffrey talking about like these critical thresholds is not just about numbers; it's also about trends because of the the exponential growth problem, right? If you start seeing things tick up a little bit, we have good enough modeling and good enough data surveillance because of the widespread testing we have to be able to, to like 
project when things are going to go bad. And also we have data from previous countries that get hit. Like we knew about Omicron well before it really whacked us that we were going to mm -hmm. be in for a long haul. You know, we were going to be in for a, a really nasty spike courtesy of, you know, sub-Saharan African data, right? So Thank you it's for not just for about, reporting it. Yeah, it's not just about numbers. It's also about trends in those numbers so we can intervene more quickly when we're while we're still confident that that curve is going to go pretty steep. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up with a final comment and then I'll leave it up to you two. I'm going to say that like despite everything we've talked about if you if you find yourself in the hospital be compassionate to your doctors and nurses because they have very little for you. <laughs> and so for self-preservation, you know, kiss a little ass, kiss a little medical ass or you know just to, just to show that you've been vaccinated. My friend Sherry got pushed to the side because she couldn't be vaccinated. And I, I think people just need to understand that we need to give a large amount of appreciation to these people that have been battling this 24 hours a day for going on over two years now. And that's what I'd like to leave people with. Please be more compassionate to one another. How about you, Jeffrey? I think um, <clears throat> for me, it's take a little time to learn some of the basics. Um, I think it goes a long ways to helping you understand why certain things are necessary, but also to call out when certain things aren't and, and understand the difference. Most people are not scientists. Most people are not going to be able to make this point and think that they're, you know, on some other level. The points that I make are based well within science reason and mathematical probability things that i'm very well versed in and things that i you know went to school for i think that one of the things that has gotten lost is the search for knowledge everybody wants to be told what to do by whoever take that as you will but nobody wants to ask the question and when you finally do start asking the questions be open and receptive to the answers because even for those of us based in science, oftentimes the answers that we get are not the ones that we wanted and we get, it pisses us off just as much as it pisses you off. It's just that we're the ones that, you know, spent a bunch of time and money doing these fucking studies only to find out we were wrong and it sucks. Yeah. And, you know, we, we understand how much it, it, it affects you but also you need to understand how much it affects us. Love it. How about Dan? You got anything you want to say to the people? Leave them with something that'll echo in their heads for the next week? Absolutely. I think the one thing that comes to mind is if you are an expert or a leader or a specialist or something, someone who has been trained or educated in a particular field for a long time, learn from the people who don't know as much as you, right? Because I guarantee you that no matter what field that you go into, it could be public health, it could be business, it could be leadership, it could be, I don't know, Boy Scouts management, it could be baseball, who knows? There's always going to be someone who objectively knows less overall than you, who knows the thing that you don't, and you can become a better person by taking them seriously and listening every once in a while. And I feel like that's been a fundamental flaw that we've done in public health is that we, we did not, we, we listened to our own kind of echo chamber too much. Um, and as long, whatever you can do to prevent yourself from living in an echo chamber and listening to outside perspectives, even if you don't agree with them, 
is going to help you, first of all, have better justifications for the things that you believe in that are correct, and also help you find the things that you're wrong about or just increase your knowledge as well. So no matter what field you're in, listen to the non-experts, especially if you are an expert. But trust the trust the expert non-experts that you're <laughs> paying attention to. And of course, if you're an expert and you have something to say that the people need to hear, you are always welcome to join us here on Public Access America, where we like to have these discussions so that people can reverse and rewind and listen again and again and again until they get it. Because sometimes that's what I do. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Dan. Thanks, Jeffrey. To those who are defeat you this is our moment this is our time to those who seek peace and security we support you yes we can and to all those who have wondered if america's beacon still burns as bright tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth but from the enduring power of our ideals democracy liberty opportunity and unyielding hope let me tell you something you already know In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome, welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Sunday live streams on YouTube. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Podcast, podcast, Stitcher, Stitcher, Stitcher Radio, Smart Radio, 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 Public, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access Public America. Access history in the making. Making history in the making. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, 
Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.